Today, we're going to talk about identifying, developing, and promoting your best high-performing talent. A monumental shift has occurred in our workplaces, requiring companies to identify leaders with a different progressive set of skills and talents. HR's ability to identify current and next-gen leaders will not only be your legacy, but ensure your organization remains competitive or outperforms your industry. To help HR pros take the strategic reins, we've called in an expert, Dr. Renee Booth, President of Leadership Solutions. Welcome to the Voices of HR podcast presented by HR Morning. I'm your host, Berta Aldrich, outperformance coach and author of Winning the Talent Show. Each week, I have candid conversations with HR practitioners, thought leaders, and C-suite executives to tease out what works and what doesn't in human resources, people strategy, corporate culture, and more. Dr. Renee Booth is an organizational psychologist and prior Hay Group vice president who has spent over 30 years identifying high-performing and high-potential executives. She is a member of the American Psychological Association and is a trusted advisor to some of the most recognizable names and their CEOs and CHROs across the U.S. Dr. Renee Booth, welcome to Voices of HR. Thank you, Berta. I'm so delighted to be here and talk about all of these interesting things in the HR arena. Well, I have been looking so forward to this conversation (laughs) because if I can, every single time we have a conversation, it's always candid and it's honest. And so I cannot (laughs) wait for our HR leaders to hear from you. Excellent. It's always good to see you. Well, so let's start here. So Mm -hmm. the world of work obviously Mm -hmm. has changed considerably. We were just Mm -hmm. talking about how long we've known each other, Mm -hmm. um, but really it's changed, I would say, over the last 30 years, but most importantly, really over the last two to three. And our listeners are one-person HR pros within smaller organizations, all the way up to CHROs of Fortune 50 companies. Today, both HR teams are mired in conversations about how to create flexibility in the workplace Mm post-pandemic. Do you have any advice as they are having these conversations? Well, I got to tell you, I think that I'm thrilled because the HR job has evolved um, over the last decade or so um, in a way that's pretty spectacular, meaning that it used to be in many companies, and even still today, that they say HR shouldn't have a seat at the table. They shouldn't necessarily report to the CEO, you know, the CEO they, sh- they can report disaffectively to the a chief administrative officer or a chief financial officer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think the last three or four years has made it clear that HR, especially HR senior people, the CHROs, are trusted advisors in the organization on people matters, matter a lot more. So when the pandemic came, the CHROs were right in the thick of it. The leaders mm-hmm. in the organization, board members, CEOs, they came to ask them, what do we do now? How do we inspire, motivate, keep people engaged during these unusual kinds of uh, times? Um, After the pandemic, back to work became an issue. How's our culture gonna be impacted by back to work and those kinds of things? I think for the first time in history, we're starting to talk about, do our leaders need to recognize mental health issues in the organization? Used to be privacy issues around those kinds of things. So we're in a sweet spot now as HR leaders. Folks are looking to us for these answers. Some of them we have, some of them we don't, but we've been at it long enough where we know now that if we have the courage to go in there as the um, senior executives that we are, people are ready to listen. We have things to say that will help all of this 
in terms of the bottom line and the health of organizations, both big and small. Couldn't agree with you more. And HR could have this bigger seat at the table. You know, a lot of times executives just wait for that opening, that Mm -hmm. time where they have the stage so that they can show their stuff. Mm -hmm. And now is the time for HR to do that. So how does our HR pros earn that trusted advisor role that you really have earned over time? For some of the greatest CEOs across the U.S., they trust you and they trust your guidance. How do HR pros within our organizations today, how do they earn that trust? So I'll have to say two things I think are great differentiators. One is courage, that you have to have the courage to say the hard things. You have to have the courage to insert yourself in places that you think you can make a difference, even when folks aren't asking for it. You Mm -hmm. have to have the courage to look at your CEO and find the most tactful way to say I think maybe we want to rethink these kinds of things. Now, that's risky, but I think it is is one of the few ways that you earn respect at the senior levels and they get to see all that we have to offer. So rather than having the organization place you in an antiquated definition of what the CHRO job is, to have the courage to step in and say, I'm a business leader too, I get what's happening on the business side and the people side and the combination of that understanding is what's most powerful in helping organizations get where they want to go. But at the same time, that means that we've got to know business. So I say to HR heads, you got to get into the language of business. You can't see yourself as support anymore and that I'm a support function. All I have to worry about are my processes and my systems and my policies. I think now you have to worry about what's happening to the macroeconomic environment. What does having those banks go down in Silicon Valley have to do with what business is for my organization today? What does those economic factors, that economic language, what does understanding the budget, the financing of your organization and how that comes about, what makes your senior leaders scared? What's keeping them up at night? Because once you get that language And you can talk not only people language, but you can talk business language, you will gain their respect. So if you're not reading The Economist, if you're not reading the journal, and I have this really amazing, um, I'm sure millennials created it. And it's like the morning news called The Morning Brew. And these guys give it to you straight every morning, but they let you know what's happening in the business and they relate it to the people. So they get both of those things. So, you know, a little bit goes a long way, but we've got to educate ourselves and not see ourselves. That's our identity crisis, Mm -hmm. to see ourselves as more business leaders, but you got to get your business language and your business education to go along with all that we know about motivating, inspiring, developing, you know, dealing with performance and talent issues around people. Absolutely. And that is an enormous change from mm-hmm. what success used to look like totally. for HR totally, maybe 30 years ago. So yeah. what you're seeing is the skills that you need today are more like a general executive, which is strategic acumen, business acumen, um, all of the things that your other peer group exactly. is dealing with within the organization with that lens of leading and managing the people. Exactly. And be mindful that your peers 
your CMOs, your sales leaders, they are beginning to learn more HR at the same time so mm-hmm. that they now know that, oh, I'm trying to run my organization and I'm trying to tell everybody to come back to work and they don't want to show up. And what do I do with that? So they're learning more HR as well. So that combination of everybody coming at the table with sophistication around people and sophistication around business and what makes a business work, I think is pretty amazing. So the HR leader has an opportunity to begin to infuse sophisticated HR um, points of view into the senior leaders of organizations today because they need it to. So it's a conversation that goes both ways. They're learning more about, they need to learn, those who don't, more about how businesses are run, what they should do around these businesses issues, but also those other senior leaders are learning more about HR and and what moves populations and culture and HR begin to uh, get their respect because they need them in that way. And I would suspect a part of this too, I mean, right now we're all, like we said at the beginning, they're all mired in these very tactical Mm -hmm. conversations right Mm -hmm. now about flexibility and all of Mm -hmm. that. But once we kind of get through all of this, when they start looking forward and strategically about where HR needs to take the organization of the future, Mm -hmm. what are some things that are HR pros that you would recommend that they start thinking about maybe 12 to 18 months from now? I think setting the expectations for organizations. I think everybody thinks we're going to go back to some normal or that Mm -hmm. things are going to settle down. I don't see that. I think that we've got to get organizations used to dealing with ambiguity and change. So for Mm -hmm. example, this whole thing about back to work, you know, I think it's important to deliver a, a message to employees that this isn't going to be our policy now, and it's going to evolve, and it may continue to evolve, rather than putting a stake in the mud and, or a stake in the ground, and then everybody starts to get anxious, and your senior people start to look for other jobs and say that if I can't work at home, before all of those things happen, we have to say that we're learning as we're going along and getting our organizations and our mindsets used to flexibility thinking these things through and saying, we don't have to put a stake in the ground. We have to get people used to going through the evolution of these changes in our external environments that are also impacting our internal environments. So I think a much, in the past, I would say HR was about, in many ways, inflexible. Here are the rules, here are the Mm -hmm. policies, all of you executives, you got to fit in there and keep those salary ranges exactly like we told you to do it. I'm saying now more flexibility is going to be required. And I think HR can lead the way in helping an organization sort of go more with the flow as they try to get to these outstanding results. Because I don't think that these hard and fast rules that we're used to from the past are going to actually work. Mm hmm. So you help a lot of organizations identify their next generation talent. Mm -hmm. And in our pre-call, we were talking a lot about the tests that you used to give. And now really what organizations are looking for and how you're helping them find this next generation talent. Can you talk a little bit about the tests that you used to give and now what you're assessing to find that high performing talent? Totally. I think that people are 
fascinating. So I, of course, being a psychologist, want to give the test. But I got to tell you that it went from testing and organizations wanting testing so that they could get a definitive answer about this individual's capabilities and their potential. And that's great. And I think there are tools out there that do a great job of that. Over the years, we've gotten more sophisticated about what those tools are and how we can collect less data and get more real life understanding about how this person has behaved in their work life. Those kinds of things are still important. But I think the testing has moved to a place that when you start to talk about personality tests and Myers-Briggs and the Hogan and all those kinds Mm -hmm. of tests, they're now becoming a language in which the organization can get on the same page to talk about talent. It used to be only HR and the uh, consultants that they brought into the organizations understood those things. But now there's sort of a common understanding of personality tests, a better respect for them. And I'm finding that there's now languages in organizations so that when the person in marketing says, I'm worried about whether this person has enough results orientation, the person in legal understands exactly what that means. So that now my executives have a language that is much more sophisticated than they have had in the past. And they're using that more to to create the, the conversations that will help to determine fit rather than using the testing itself to say, this person mm-hmm. is the right person or this person is the wrong person. So I'm happy to say that the sort of people, understanding of people and metrics and psychology tests and all those things are not things that people are fearful of. But even the executives are saying to me, I want to know more about me as well because mm-hmm. I want to fit. I don't just want to right. go to the organization and say, do you want me? I want to go to an organization that I actually fit into. So those mm-hmm. tests are becoming friends to the organization and to the individuals to say, not am I good or bad, but is this a good situation where I'm going to fit? And the language becomes more consistent amongst per- the people that are making those choices. I would say I, I talked to a lot of HR friends mm-hmm. and I think some of their trepidation about mm-hmm. talent development mm-hmm. is the fact that the executives, the CEO, some CEOs included pushback. Mm-hmm. They consider it an expense mm-hmm. to identify and train uh, up, up, up and coming talent, mm-hmm. uh, particularly even millennials starting very, very early in someone's career. What would you say to those individuals who are trying to convince mm-hmm. their CEO or their C-suite that talent development is necessary? Long ago are gone are the days that the, the executives sit in their seats and they handpick the next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say to them, one, the best in class organizations mm-hmm. take talent development seriously. Because high-performing talent, when they come in the door, one of the questions they ask is, how am I going to be developed? What are my Mm -hmm. opportunities? What does succession planning look like here? All of those things, the best talent now come to organizations expecting that. So that I would say best-in-class companies and best-in-class talent all believe that having a structured or infrastructure inside an organization around talent development is really important. And for those organizations who don't use it, 
I guess this is point number two, you can become the training ground for other organizations. You can bring people in, you can give them your culture and teach them the basics. And if they feel that there's no way that they can learn, even if they're average in their jobs, if there are no opportunities to learn, they hop over to your competitors who have opportunities for them to develop. And so you lose talent and you start back over again, spending that money anyway on new folks entering the organization. So those are two pretty powerful reasons to consider it. It is There is a business case, completely rational business case for saying, if you bring talented people or even bring people in your organizations in general, there's an expectation that you're going to help motivate, inspire, and develop them. Yeah, because if you aren't, somebody else will. That's exactly and, right. That's exactly And right. I'm sure you see it as well as I, offers that are going out to some of this top talent. Not only are they paying at the top of the scale, but they're also offering all these ancillary benefits, That's right. such as a coach for your first six months That's exactly in, right. in the job. And speaking to that, we've seen a lot more people say, um, when I enter into a new organization, how are you going to support me mm-hmm. to integrate in this culture? Where is a safe place for me to go in those first six mm-hmm. months? And they are negotiating those kinds of things as they walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Because it they is are. so hard to enter at the senior levels in particular, mm-hmm. a new organization, a new culture, and hit the ground running and get things done. So these folks know and they're wise enough to say, I need support in that way. And the best in class organizations are giving it to them. Absolutely. Do you think women are asking for that as much as men? No. 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 And they should. They should. They should. And mm-hmm. because it's not a big ask. And now, and, mm-hmm. and the really good companies, it's not unusual. It's not at all unusual. Mm-hmm. So I would say for women, especially who tend to be conservative about what they ask for, I'm like, ask for that, ask for that. Yeah. It gives you such a leg up in terms of your development, in terms of spending your time on the right things in the beginning, but also not getting yourself in a situation just because of a misstep that will mm-hmm. be so hard to recover from in your first six months, six months or so. Why not get the support? Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the best asks yeah. that I ever had was my first C-suite position. Yeah. I asked for a coach. Exactly. For exactly. the first six months. And it paid dividends. Extremely high. But you remember that ha- asking for a coach used to be, oh, you must be a problem child. Yes. It had such stigma attached to it. And now <laughs> folks are saying, that's part of my package. That's a part Mm -hmm. of, and not only a part of my package coming in, but I want to be a part of my package going out because transitions are hard for Mm -hmm. people in general, but for especially senior C-suite people and your hypos, they want to be successful. And they figured out some of the formula of how you're successful and getting support is one of those. They do. So let's, let's continue on that conversation about, so there's individuals that are listening, they want to continue to ascend. Mm -hmm. And maybe even some aspire for the Mm C-suite. What would you recommend they do once they reach that executive level position? Because what I'm finding is individuals expect 
that they just continue doing more of what they had already done yeah. when it's a whole different ball game yeah. at yeah. the executive level. Totally. So can you give some advice on that? Yeah, I would say my advice on that is know what you want. Most people, mm -hmm. my dad used to say to me, most people get what they want. The problem is they don't know what they want. Mm -hmm. And I find that there are lots of people who sort of enter there and they say, but do I want to be the chief? Or am I good enough for that? And they wait for the organization to tell them that. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, it's been my experience is the ones who get there have the courage to imagine a world in which they are in charge mm -hmm. and they can say it out loud. They can say it out loud to themselves, to a colleague, let their expectation expectations be known. Because Barta, really when you're aspiring for a job, the, the brilliant part is the working towards it. I mean, getting the job, you know, once you get it, that's cool, but the working, so why not imagine that you can work for the biggest possible job that you think that you would love? And so my um, advice to people is dare to be brave and bold enough to imagine that you can do it, anything you want to do. And the second thing is let somebody know about it. Because when you get up there in that really competitive, rarefied air, People are not going to be looking out for you in the ways mm -hmm. that they may have in the past. And you're going to have to start looking out for yourself. And it is okay to say out loud, yeah, I want that big job. Or yeah, I want to influence those people. I want to do this for the good of the whole. I want to, I want to see the whole enterprise. Or I want to go to something that I've never done before. It is okay to aspire to those things. But you've got to believe it first. And you can't expect the organization to do that thinking and motivating for you. You got to start by doing it for yourself. Absolutely. I do think that, that most individuals are unprepared for the competition it's, that it's they're stiff. going to feel at the top. And that's why I think, you know, there, there's these executives that you, you know, kind of research and you read about and they're, you know, ex you know, professional players, you know, um, mm -hmm. athletes, mm -hmm. and they're used to that competitive environment. Right. But That's I also right. find a lot of women aren't prepared. That's right. They just don't know what to do once they get there. And I think it's because a lot of times we hear build relationships, build exactly. strong relationships. Exactly. And I think that there is a disconnect between mm -hmm. what that actually means at yeah. the top of the organization. Can you give us some insight into what what does it really mean when somebody says, build strong relationships? Well, I think you have to have a groundswell of support to get things done in organizations. But the old mm -hmm. adage is true that um, it's more important to be respected for doing your job well and mm -hmm. understanding the sandbox that you're in. That's more respected than being liked or mm -hmm or seeking approval. So lots of people enter those big jobs and when they uh, hit a, a rough patch, which you will, mm -hmm. they start talking about fair. Oh God, this isn't fair. I, you know, they didn't tell me this. And I'm like, just pick yourself off because this is your sandbox, dust yourself off. You made it and get back to it. Do not get derailed by the level of competition. Do not get derailed by it. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's, some of it is just an artifact of being at the top and the stress and the pressure and the competition and everything's on the line at the top. So I would say for people to get a realistic perspective of what that competition is, 
understand the conversations and the dynamics that come about when organizations are trying to advance, when they are under the gun and everybody's talking about fairness and equity and all those things, which is important. Mm-hmm. All of that is important, but it's still rough. It's still rough in there. So for those people who um, want it to be uh, neat and smooth, it's not that. But it's amazing because of the impact that you can make and the difference you can make in your community and people that are in the organization. But you have to be courageous enough to be able to play in that competitive environment and not be super sensitive in a way that you can get derailed by the inevitable conflicts and missteps and things that you think are um, um, challenging to your your own emotions, that you Mm got to find a way to demonstrate that emotional control and accept the spirit of competition, positive, effective competition that goes on there without being um, derailed by it. It is not an incremental step to go from a director job to the C-suite. It is a quantum leap. Talk to your mentors about what it feels like, what it looks like, how it goes, so that you will understand what uh, success actually looks like Mm -hmm. in the C-suite. And as I'm hearing you explain all of that, all I keep thinking about is mental toughness. Yeah. Yeah. Mental agility, strategic agility. I remember a friend of mine, wasn't even a client, a friend of mine, so I can share the story. She told me about how she was walking into her very first board meeting. Yeah. And she was head of HR walking in. She had to deliver some bad news about turnover and and Mm -hmm. she was asking for some money um, on her budget. And her boss came up to her before that meeting and said, know that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. (laughs) And if you mess up, this could be the end of your career. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, I knew exactly what he was doing because I'd seen it before. I'd seen it done before. I'd seen him do it to others before. And I just shrugged it off. I went in there and I just, you know, that's right. That's right. I hit, hit the ball out of the, out of the park that's mental agility. That's what happens. That's right. So I think women sometimes they look up and they say, can I really have it all? Yeah. I think you're a testament to that. I certainly made it there. There's lots of women who achieve those levels Yeah. and you don't have to give up everything to get there. Can you help dispel that notion that you can't have it all, that you can't achieve it if you want to be a mother, if you want to be a wife, if you want to have a family? Yes. Yeah, I think you can have whatever you want. You may can't have it all at the same time, but you and stay the course. I mean, I tell people to write down what you want. I think remember when you were mm-hmm. 17 and you were imagining all the things that you wanted and you've been marginalized over the years to get rid of them. Go dig them back up. I think you can get whatever you want and it's up to you. And I think Women tend to, many women, not all tend to be, they want that approval. And I'm like, learn mm-hmm. how to lead without that approval. Learn mm-hmm. how to stay the course when you see doubt in other people's eyes. Learn how to go get your support somewhere else if you can't get it where you think mm-hmm. you should get it from. And that know that um, it's okay to want it all. 
And it's mm-hmm. okay to wait for things that you can't have today. Don't get rid of them. Say, I can't have that today. I think I'll I'll have that tomorrow. I was the head of SVP of human resources for a bank. And my son was like six years old. And mm-hmm. I was trying to be a mom. And he was trying to integrate himself into school. Before that, I was a consultant. And I was on the road all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I decided to um, say to myself, you know, I got to pay attention to this kid. I don't know what that mm-hmm. looks like, but I knew what my priority was. It yeah. didn't get rid of my point of view about my career. I ended mm-hmm. up saying, okay, I'm going to start a consulting firm with me. And I asked two colleagues that I really can trust and said, for a year or two, as I integrate my mm-hmm. son into school, we can work with these kinds of clients and do this kind of work as professional women. And then once we get these kids organized, we're going to go back into corporate America, which we loved. And here we are still 25 years later in the consulting firm. And we get to be on boards. We get to coach people that we really enjoy coaching. We get to Mm -hmm. build a business and understand when the balance sheet doesn't look great, how to fret, and then how to make it better. So in by following what our true rhythm of our lives are and not losing sight of all that we wanted to be over time, we were able to fit it all in and couldn't be happier. So that really kind of begs the question around remaining flexible mm-hmm. in your career, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there's some who need to hear, you can become more. There's some who just need to believe it and believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this recent notion around CHROs becoming CEOs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why not? What transferable (laughs) skills do you think that they have? I know. I think it's super exciting. Um, What transferable skills do you think they have to become a top performing CEO? Well, that's an interesting question. I think HR heads see the enterprise. So they are intimately involved in the enterprise, up, down, across, because they set policies. And they set policies that are consistent with what's going on with our external environment, or policies that are going to impact our competitiveness with those who are in our industries, that they're at the policy and enterprise level a lot. And then you have things like pandemics come down the pike. And it became HR's sweet spot with those things. So I think that that, and companies are people. It Mm -hmm. is about the people when it's all said and done. It's about the people as individuals. It's at the people, about the people in a department. It's about people in cultures, the cultures of functions versus the cultures of the whole enterprise. HR has been talking about those kinds of things forever. So I think, that enterprise point of view, and I think that focus on people and talent. I mean, the good the good CEOs that I know use HR leaders as your trusted advisors in those ways, and they talk about the business with them. And a lot of them got their business education, not from MBA programs, mm-hmm. but from their CEOs and people on the leadership team. So it's a very applied understanding of business and how it works and what the ups and downs and the pitfalls are. But it's also about the talent itself, how the talent feels and how it operates at the most senior levels in an organization to get it done. So why not? I say 
they're poised for that, why not? Absolutely. So let me take you down a little bit of a rabbit hole right now, just to make sure that we, what we promised at the top of the podcast that we actually deliver, we had promised our HR pros that we would help them identify top talent. Mm -hmm. And I suspect some of your larger, most outperforming organizations are really starting to look at talent soon after they arrive within mm -hmm. the organization, out of college, mm -hmm. maybe. What one, two, or three talents or skills do you think our HR pros should start looking for to identify that next generation of talent? Yeah, I think one of the um, classic characteristics is going to have to be adaptability and flexibility. Mm -hmm. Because I'm finding that for the first time in my career, in leadership positions, we have uh, baby boomers, we have Gen Xers, and we have millennials. And these guys all have a different point of view on how to manage, motivate, and inspire people. So that if you're coming into an organization nowadays, and, and they have similar levels of power and influence in the organization, because it used to mm -hmm. be the baby boomers had all the power and everybody did things according to how they saw it. Let's set goals and objectives, follow your goals and objectives. You'll get your 3% and you'll get whatever else is coming to you in bonus right. or incentive. Well, it got more flu fluid and the, and the millennials are saying that the how is as important as the what. How mm -hmm. I do what I do is as important as the what I do. Mm -hmm. When you're coming into a new organization, I think HR should make sure that who they're hiring is flexible enough to speak the language of these different kinds of leadership styles and types that are going to exist um, in these organizations. So, And I think the flexibility would extend to learning new things because now it's not always up straight up in the organization, mm -hmm. but folks who come into the organization and have interests in diversity and the variety of the kinds of things that they're going to be doing in their careers as they move forward. So that adaptability and that point of view, but at the same time, things like results orientation, do you want to work hard? Do you want to make a difference in this organization? Can you get along with other people? in the organization, those things will remain important always. But I think this flexibility, this adaptability um, is gonna be really important as people navigate what, what our organizations are gonna become um, in the future. I also think that unlike the past, um, I don't think the junior people need to be overly educated. When I entered the workforce, I had a doctorate. <laughs> I sort of like the idea. I sort of like the idea of these, you know, younger people getting their bachelors, working a while, thinking about what other kind of education mm -hmm. they want, and getting that and making it a more um, iterative process mm -hmm. about application and learning and those kinds of things. So once again, it goes back to that notion of flexibility as a characteristic, adaptability because we're going to be international and global and all those things are going to be clearly, I think, having um, uh, working independently and this notion around tech, you got to be able to monitor yourself and work independently if you're working at home and if you're not, those kinds of things. 
I think are going to be the new um, uh, criterion for pe- young people to be effective in organizations. But I think if you get people who come in with the right set of values, you can teach them lots of things. But those values are about, do I want to be in this place? Do I want to really work hard? Am I going to be adaptable and flexible here? Or am I going to just dig my heels in and say, I got to go jog in it? 8 a.m. And if you don't let me do it, I'm not going to work here. That the flexibility and adaptability part, because it is really diverse in terms of leadership in these organizations today. And what about now? Let's flip this over and say there's certain types of people that you don't want Mm -hmm. to ascend in your organization. Mm -hmm. I always Mm -hmm. think about the ones that lack the character Mm-hmm. and maybe have narcissistic narcissistic mm-hmm. tendencies. That's right. How do you identify them? How do you identify the people that you really don't want to become a toxic leader within your organization? I would say that used to be hard, but it's pretty easy because what we're doing now is if you did a 360 on somebody and organizations make that a normal course of how they run their organizations, mm-hmm. their peers will tell you, the people who work for them will tell you, your customers and your clients will tell you. People with narcissistic tendencies are all about themselves and people feel that and they know that they are not working in the interest of the good of the whole. The identification of these people is fairly easy because they are not to be denied. However, what people do with them is a really big problem. The differentiating leaders are really good leaders, deal with that thing early, clearly, get the toxic stuff out of there as soon as they know it, as soon as feasibly possible. The poorer leaders end up letting this thing lag on until it influences their culture in all different Mm -hmm. kinds of ways that are not positive. So the identification is even if you feel it yourself as a leader, um, the tools that are now being used in HR are helping them to identify these types as well. But the most important thing is what do you do when you find out? What do you do with that person that is toxic, that is undermining, that is narcissistic? And I guess what I would say is the sooner the better, make the tough call. Make the tough call. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's where that courage comes in that you talked about. And I think also there are so many people who get in leadership positions that don't want to do the, the tough stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that you can help people get to where they belong, whether it's in your organization or not, in a compassionate way. But if it's not working, it's not working. It's not going to be good for anybody because you don't want to do that difficult thing because it makes you feel bad and it is kind of icky. But that's what they that's what they pay you the big bucks for is to sometimes do some of that tough stuff. <laughs> It is. It is. You can't let that kind of stuff flounder in organizations. It's not an easy job. That's why very few make it. That's right. right. Absolutely. Okay. So at the end of every podcast, we ask these questions called rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. So they're one Mm -hmm. sentence and it's really just to get our audience uh, to get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) All right. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. She's a psychologist, people. She uh, she understands. She she qualifies before you ask the question. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So what company do you study as a best practices in HR for company culture? 
You know, I have to tell you, on the big scale, mm -hmm. I look at um, Netflix. Mm -hmm. I follow Reed Hastings and what he does with that company and how he makes mistakes, how he allows people to make mistakes, how they make the tough calls when it's not doing well and when it's doing well. And I follow what he does with people, how he announces it to people, his communication strategies with mm -hmm. them. And I think he's very modern in a balanced way about how he deals with people in that organization and what we read in the news and the media. So I'm really on, um, on top of that. I think nowadays I'm really into academic institutions and what mm. they're doing with people. Like I'm looking at Penn and Spelman and Notre Dame and those folks are now fully engaging in the HR kinds of activities and mm -hmm. thinking about culture and thinking about, you know, how do we manage in the provost's office and what do we want our leadership style in? And it's like new fertile ground to begin to think about those. So those are like the two places that I have been really watching personally to see how the academic institutions are embracing leadership development mm -hmm. and seeing how um, pop culture organizations like Net Netflix is mm -hmm. doing it in a way where they're holding people accountable, mm -hmm. but it's still kind of cool to work there. It's really cool to work there. That's awesome. What underrated tools are indispensable for your job? I always use frameworks and structures. So if I have a problem, I want to identify the problem. And then I use my framework of that we learned in graduate school is um, what's your data input? Where are you getting your data from? How are you going to analyze your data? What did your data tell you? And then what are the possible outcomes? So it's just about everything that pops up. I'm like, where's my data? Where, and you know, people that people say, why do you go to college? That one thing I learned out of college was pretty amazing. So I'd like frameworks and tools. And I even like it for people. If this person is a problem, give me my data and my input. Let's analyze it. Let's think about the situations that they're in, when it works, when it doesn't work. And then let's talk about what we're going to do. Because that framework keeps you honest. It doesn't let your gut overrule what the data is actually saying and those kinds of things. So even if I'm looking at an organization's culture, I say, okay, what are they doing in terms of leadership? What are they doing in terms of culture? What are they do doing in terms of reward and recognition? I want my variables and a framework to analyze it as opposed to going with anecdotal information that people provide and those kinds of things. So I go back to my basics of what I learned about discovery before coming up with these answers quickly without, you know, doing my work. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite fail forward of yours? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I do. Because I think every single time I did anything for just the money, whether it was take on a big client, whether it was, um, developing a product that was going to be easy to sell and it was all about the money, it always ended up in a really crazy wackadoodle kind of place. So mm. I always try to stay ahead of or think through why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And make my purpose lead my discussions or lead my decisions 
as opposed to doing things for the money. And the other thing is saying no, is saying no. I always want to say yes. I always want to be there and do it. And learning the art of saying no, there were like some pivotal times when all I had to do was say no. And it would have made a whole world of difference. So now I really, really hold myself accountable for it. Is this a no moment? And then say the no, say the no. Say the no. What advice would you give to a woman who wants to ascend or succeed in an HR or any role within an organization? Courage. Courage. Mm. Even when it's scary, even when it's difficult, if you've got something to say at the table, say it. Just say it. It, You will be stunned at how what you say can be insightful to other people. And don't be afraid to make that mistake that you sound ridiculous. Frame it like, I may be wrong or I may not be understanding or I don't understand what you're exactly saying. However, whatever you need to do, have the courage to say it. You can say anything you want to say in a tactful way. And the good HR leaders I know, they look their CEOs in the eye and they've got a way of saying, yeah, I hear you, but let's think about that (laughs) and not be the order takers and, and just doing what everybody wants them to do, but say, hey, I'm at this table and I count. And I've got some experiences that you don't have and you need them in this discussion. Have the courage to say it. And you'll always recover from the outcomes, whether it was good or bad. So have the courage to say what you need to say. All right, Dr. Renee Booth, where can people go to learn more about you? I have a small boutique firm in Philadelphia, and we can be reached at www.leadership-solutions.com. Today, we've been joined by Dr. Renee Booth, founder and president of Leadership Solutions. Thank you, Dr. Renee, for always dispensing your advice with (laughs) the highest of candor (laughs) and the most impact. It's been such an honor and a pleasure. It's great. I had a great time here today. Thank you for inviting me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already left a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. If you have any feedback or questions about the show, drop them in the comments wherever you listen or email podcast at hrmorning.com. To find me, go to bertaaldrich.com or send me a message on LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more Voices of HR.